0: This morning for our sermon text, we're studying Genesis chapter 26, Genesis chapter 26, and before we read the chapter, we'll pray. So please now, if you'd bow your heads and join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed bless your holy scriptures to us. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be made meek and humble, ready to receive these words for that which they truly are, the very words of God. I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak. Help me to speak according to the wisdom of God and not the foolishness of men. Father, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 26, starting at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said to him, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarrelled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarrelled over that also. So he called its name Sitna and he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. So concerning the life of Isaac, the scripture gives us what I would say are three main events in the life of Isaac. The first main event in the life of Isaac was that he was the offering who did not die. He was the one whom Abraham received, as it were, back from the dead because God provided a substitute for the life of Isaac. The second main event in the life of Isaac is that Abraham secured for Isaac a bride from a distant land. Abraham secured for Isaac, Rebekah his wife. The third main event in the life of Abraham comes a little bit later in the, book of Ge- in the book of Genesis. It's actually, I hope, next week's sermon when Isaac lays the blessing of the covenant upon his son Jacob, even though he intended to lay it upon his other son Esau. Apart from that, apart from those events, everything else that we know about Isaac is basically summed up in chapter 26. So what's the impression that we get of Isaac? I would put it this way. Isaac was certainly a faithful man. Isaac was certainly one whom God made his own. He believed the promises. He was in the covenant line. And through him, we know from that which God said to him at the, at the start of Genesis chapter 26, through him, all the world would be blessed. His offspring would be as the stars of heaven. And your offspring and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we have to honour him as a faithful man. He was certainly God's chosen man, as indeed Abimelech comes to realise. But when we compare the life of Isaac to the life of Abraham and when we compare the life of Isaac to his son, Jacob, Isaac just comes off just a little bit less shiny. He comes off just a little bit less admirably than his father or his son. It seems that though Isaac is a faithful man, it seems that his basic plan for life was to be as comfortable as possible within the outline of the commandments of God. Now, I know all of us want to be comfortable. If you have a house, you want to be comfortable in your house. You want heat, you want food, you want a nice bed, a nice living room or whatever. We all want to be comfortable within our house. But it seems that this is Isaac's main aim in life, his own personal comfort. For example, remembering that which we studied last week in Genesis chapter 25, we know that God had spoken to Rebecca, and we can assume to Rebecca and Isaac and told them that the youngest born son, not the oldest, the youngest born son is the one upon whom God was going to lay the covenant blessings. Looking at Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, we read, And the Lord said to her, that's to Rebecca. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. But if you look at what it says at verse 28 of Genesis chapter 25, we read that Isaac loved Esau, the oldest, the firstborn, because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. OK, let's talk about this parent-child relationship we all know that there shouldn't be favorites all of us we all know that there shouldn't be favorites and we all know that you shouldn't choose one child over and above another child but it would seem to me that one of the worst reasons to decide that one child is your favorite and that one child is to be loved over and above another child would be because that child finds and cooks the best food You know you you could sort of understand a dad who loves one particular son because one particular son is loving is loving hard-working and industrious and it would seem in those circumstances well perhaps the dad might be thinking look he's got the leadership quality that I think he needs to inherit the family business you know that I'm not saying it should be that way I'm not saying any parent should ever play the favorite but that would kind of make sense But to play the favourite because a certain child gets the best food and is the best cook, it has to indicate a certain degree of selfishness. Isaac basically wants to sit down and have the good food brought to him. And because Esau is the best at bringing the good food to Isaac, Esau is Isaac's favoured son. And... You know, as I've said, the Lord willing, next week we're in Genesis 27. Isaac, though he knew that God had said the blessing was to go with Jacob, was willing to lay the blessing on Esau. He was willing to try and manipulate God. One of the other features of the life of Isaac is his constant desire to basically, I think, set himself up somewhere and not have to move. In all of his life, it seems that he was chasing after a well. Now, what's the importance of this? Well, he wants somewhere where he can be comfortable. And in the Middle East, a well of running and fresh water, incredibly important. It's not bad that he wants somewhere that he can be comfortable, but I think what Isaac's plan was, was, look, Instead of me moving with the flocks and the herds like my father Abraham did, I want to set myself up somewhere and I'll send the servants out with the flocks and the herds and they can just come back and report to me on a pretty regular basis and we'll be at this comfortable place with good flowing water and uh, I can make my life pretty comfortable. Once again, you just get this picture that Isaac... Is not the kind of guy that motivates himself to get up, get active and do something. When the king called Abimelech, and I'll point out that we have another king called Abimelech in the life of Abraham, probably the son of the previous Abimelech. There's been, there's been at least 60 years past since Abraham was in this nation dealing with a king called Abimelech, probably the son of Abimelech. When the king called Abimelech comes to Isaac to try and negotiate a covenant, well, you see there one of the big differences between Abraham and Isaac. A similar thing happened to Abraham. But remember, Abraham actually raised the dispute with the king. He said, listen, my servants dig wells. Your servants come and drive my servants away and close up the wells. Do something about it. And Abimelech said, oh, I didn't know this was happening. This won't ever happen again. Isaac says nothing. He's just, he's reluctant to draw a line in the sand, as it were. He's reluctant to um, press an issue. The last two verses of chapter 26. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Bassamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What did Abraham do when Isaac was drawing to 40 years old? He got his most trusted servant, probably Eliezer, a faithful man. He put him in charge of his goods and he said to Eliezer, you've got a mission. All right, you're going to swear before the Lord that you will fulfill this mission. Go to my clan. Take a 600 mile journey to my clan and there secure a wife for my son from my clan. Why? Because my clan is a God-conscious clan. Now, he didn't say that, but that's the whole point. Abraham came from a clan, if you remember way back to the beginning of the life of Abraham, I I told you his life started off as a God-conscious pagan. They were idolaters, they did practice the worship of the stars and the sun and the moon, etc., etc., but he was God-conscious and when God called him, he responded to the call and he left that life behind. And so Abraham is basically saying to his servant, go to my people, at least they are a God conscious people and get from there a wife for my son. I don't want her marrying amongst the local tribes. Abraham supplied the wife for his son. What does Isaac do? Well, the answer is pretty much nothing. Concerning Esau, did he organise a wife for Esau? And the answer is no. Esau went and found his own. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife and Basmath the daughter of Elon the Hittite. <coughs> Esau said, there's some pretty girls over in the neighbouring town. I'm going to marry a few of them. I'm going to, get, to get, get together a little harem for myself. And Isaac said, okay. That's the way it goes. He's a different man to Abraham though in many ways he's similar. He's a faithful man, but he's not what you'd call a vigorous faithful man. He's not a faithful man who's inclined to draw lines in the sand. He's not a faithful man who's inclined to go to war. And he probably needed to be. Let's just move through the chapter, starting at... Uh, We're basically going to do this paragraph by paragraph, or at least the paragraphs as set out in my Bible. I read the ESV. I find them most convenient for this particular chapter. Looking in chapter 26, the first paragraph runs from verse 1 to verse 5. There's a famine in the land, not the same famine that there was in the days of Abraham, but another famine in the land. And Isaac says, well, there's no food here and there's no water here and it's time to clean out. Sorry, time to clear out. Let's go. And it appears that he had decided that as his father Abraham had once gone to Egypt, he himself would go to Egypt. The Lord appears to Isaac. Verse 2, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. You're not to go to Egypt. You're to stay in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. The promises given to Abraham are now specifically and explicitly given directly to Isaac. Stay here. You've travelled far enough, you're not going to go any further, stay here. This means that Isaac is now in the land called Gerar and Isaac is dealing with a king called Abimelech just as his father had. Interesting, verse 5 concerning um, this blessing that Isaac is receiving. It's because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Once again, you've got this idea Of God's grace being given to someone who does not earn it, who who does not deserve it. God is no man's debtor. God has taken Isaac and God has chosen to make Isaac the man who stands in his presence. Whether or not the people around about him understand this, God has chosen to lay his blessings on Isaac. So Isaac settled in Gerar. We're looking now at the second paragraph and this is the paragraph where Isaac basically, almost word for word, you could say, repeats the sin of his father Abraham. He settled in Gerar, the men asked him about his wife and he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. (laughs) Now, the Bible, you know, the text, the scripture doesn't really sort of tell us anything. Um, about his thought process. It doesn't tell us anything or say anything about that that would make you wonder what in the heck is going on here. But that's the question you're supposed to ask. He's just received the promises of God. Now, we don't know how long it was before verse 5 and verse 6, but he's just received the promises of God. God has said to him, all my blessings are going to land upon your shoulders. All my blessings are going to flow through your family, out into all of the nations. You've got your wife, Rebecca. All my blessings are going to flow through this line. And the very next thing he does is say, well, maybe God can't look after my wife. Maybe God can't look after me. Maybe I need to manipulate. Maybe I need to change things a little bit. Maybe I need to be a bit sneaky and look after myself. You know, one of the features of his son, Jacob, is that Jacob was a dishonest man. Well, where might he have learnt dishonesty? Well, the truth is many sons learn their sins from their fathers. Many sons basically copy the sins that they've grown up with that they see in the life of their parents. It's sad, but true. She is my sister for he feared to say my wife lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca because she was attractive in appearance. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. Now stop and I'll just point something out, just a little thing in the text. You know what the word Isaac means? Laughter. So it's the same word but this time presented as a verb. It's presented as a proper name, Isaac, the name of, I mean, a proper noun, Isaac, the name of Isaac. So the text, kind of trying to get it literal, it kind of literally says, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac Isaacing with Rebekah. <laughs> Isaac Isaacing with Rebekah. And the word there that says with, well, it's the word that talks about close connection, in possession of, beside, alongside with, he saw Isaac, isaac with Rebecca, his wife. Now, where to take it from that, that there was a lot of happiness involved in Isaac, isaac with Rebecca, his wife. There was laughter involved. Your text probably says laughing with, sporting with, something like that. I don't know what he saw, but he saw enough to know, uh-uh, this is not brother and sister. Uh-uh, this is husband and wife. And... Once again, we have this repeat of pretty much the life of Abraham. The king calls him in and says, I know this woman's your wife. Why did you lie in the first place? Why did you lie to us? Why why did you do this thing which could bring my nation into sin? And so now you've got to stop and ask yourself, all right, what kind of man was Abimelech? This Abimelech, probably son of the previous Abimelech. He was in some way a God-conscious man. And he understood the laws of God. He understood the righteousness of God. He understood the righteousness that is required. What does that make him? Well, you see, Muslims understand the laws of God. They understand the laws concerning adultery. They understand that you should not take another man's wife, that the marriage relationship is sanctified. It doesn't make him a believer, but it makes him certainly a God conscious man. And it makes him a man who was willing to obey that which he understood. And so Isaac had assumed that he was going into a godless nation there to be surrounded by godless people who did nothing right. And Abimelech rebukes Isaac and says, why did you come here and lie to us? Why is it that you were dishonest? Why did you do this thing?" Isaac said, because I thought lest I die because of her. I thought you were murderers, rapists, and generally likely to kill me. You know, when believers forget that the only thing that sets us apart is the grace of God, we're prone to jump to these conclusions and we're prone to do these things. When when we forget that the only thing that has made us different to the world around us is the working of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, We're prone to work on the assumption that we must be in some way better than the people we meet in our lives. Forgetfulness of the things of God, my friends, is a sin. And we ought not allow ourselves to forget this. The most humble people upon the face of the earth should be the people of God. Because we're the ones that know that we were utterly lost in our sins and had no hope We were apart from the people of God, apart from the commonwealth of Israel. We were dead in our sins. And the only thing that has changed us, that has set us apart, is the electing grace of God. God set his love upon us, not because of anything within us, but because he chose to. Why does God love you? Why does God love me? Answer, because he does. (laughs) And that's as much as we get told. That's it. He does because he does. He does because he's gracious. That's it. You start to think you've earned your salvation and you start to become a Pharisee and a very unpleasant person. And this temptation can come to any believer. And so Isaac judged the people round about him, assumed that he was better than the people round about him and assumed that he could lie to the people round about him. He forgot, he forgot that the only reason he was still alive was that God had put a substitute in his place on the offering of the burnt, of, on the altar of the burnt offering. God had put a substitute in his place. He forgot. Don't forget it, my friends. Scripture does not actually give us a permit to lie to the people round about us. We should of all people be the most humble, honest, trustworthy people. When you lie someone, when you deceive someone, at the very least you're assuming that you're smarter than them and you can get away with it. That's the assumption behind lies and deception. I'm smarter than them, they won't work it out, and I'll get away with it. That ought not be so amongst the people of God. And so Abimelech puts an order out warning all of his people, do not touch this man or his wife. Anyone who does so shall surely be put to death. The next paragraph in my Bible is from verses 12 to 16, and this is Isaac sowing and reaping a hundredfold. Now, look, even with modern modern agriculture and modern farming methods, I'm telling you that if you sow wheat and reap a hundredfold, you're pretty happy with your harvest. You're really happy with your harvest. It's a good crop to get a hundredfold of anything. He got a hundredfold. This is indicating to us that and we're told the Lord Yahweh blessed him. Yahweh blessed his labor and he became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And we get this little thing in brackets. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled, the, filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. You're a threat to us. You're doing well. You're doing better than we do. You're a threat to us. There are too many of you and your, your people are multiplying too quickly and you're making too much money. You're making too much money. You're taking too much gold out of my system. You know, when you grow that much food, you sell at a profit. You're a threat to us. Go away. So Isaac goes away. He goes and seeks a place where he can settle, a place with water. The next paragraph in my Bible is from verses 17 to 22. He goes and digs the wells of water that were dug in the days of his father and he gave them the names that his his father had given them. So he had hopes, let's go and get these wells dug and and I'll be basically Abraham the second. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, this water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek. Esek means contention, argument, stress. Esek. He went and dug another well somewhere else. This time they called the well Sitna, which means envious, covetousness, envious. Then he went from there and dug another well, and this one they did not quarrel over, and he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And Rehoboth means a broad place, a place with plenty of space. The Lord has made a space for us. He dug another well. From there, he went up to Beersheba. Now, this is the providence of God. At the start of the story, he turned around and started to head for Egypt. God stops him on the way to Egypt and says, "Uh, uh-uh, go no further. He then settles where he is. He then comes into conflict with, conflict with the people around these people of Gerar, and then they start troubling him and he starts moving back towards the promised land. OK, this is God's way of bringing people back into line. This is illustrative of the way God works in our lives. Believers can, can drift. Believers can fall away. If they are God's people, they will be brought back. If they are God's people, he will bring them back. Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd loses nothing that is his. If he did lose that which is his, he would not be the good shepherd. If he did lose it, what right would he have to claim to be the good shepherd? Isaac, in the providence of God, is being moved back to the promised land. And when he finally comes to Beersheba, which is well within the promised land, the Lord appears to him again. I am the God of Abraham, your father. At verse 24, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. He settled. The altar altar is the place of worship. He now has water. He now has once again the promises of God. He considers that he is now where God wants him to be. Here is where he's going to set up this base camp idea that he had. Here is where he's going to have as much comfort as he can. Verses 26 to 33, we have the king from Gerar coming to see Isaac. Why? Well, as I've said, this this man is a... This man is a God-conscious king. This man realises something. You know, though we didn't like him much, though he didn't impress us very much, this man is the man upon whom His God has set his blessing. This man is the man through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I'd rather be at peace with this man than in contention with this man. I'd rather be at peace with the people of God than at war with the people of God. And so Abimelech comes, he comes with an advisor, he comes with the commander of his army. Most likely there are warriors with him. Probably it looks fairly intimidating. And Isaac says, why have you come to see me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Sort of complaining. Why? And they reply, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Remember, God made this promise to Abraham. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. Abimelech understood something. God meant it. That's the way of the world with regards to God's people, with regards to the church, not just this church. I just mean the church, the gathering of the saints, those who are in Christ. Those who bless this gathering, God will bless. Those who curse the gathering of the saints, God will curse. And though they might seem to have power, they don't have power over God. And when powerful men and women are being given over to their sins, God is working by his providence. God is pulling them into line. Those who bless, God will bless. Those who curse, God will curse. Abimelech seeks peace. Remember in his eyes, Isaac is a powerful man, large household, lots of people. God blesses his work. God blesses his sowing. God blesses his digging of wells. You don't want that man for an enemy. And so he wants peace. He wants to know at least when he looks in the direction of the land that Isaac is dwelling in, trouble won't come from that general direction. And so they make a feast, they exchange oaths, Isaac sends them away, they depart from him in peace. And that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of this city is Besheba to this day. Basically, it's in the same location of the well that Abraham had dug when Abraham swore an oath with the previous Abimelech. Sheba means the well of the oath, the well of the promises. Beersheba is the place where Isaac has decided that he will settle. So when we think about an Isaac, when we think about a man who is let's say, not so great on the scale of sainthood as compared to his father. And ultimately, Jacob, not so great on the scale of sainthood as compared to Jacob. And when I say sainthood, I simply mean saintliness, godliness. All who are in Christ are the saints of God, the set apart ones, the ones made holy by God. What do we learn? The electing grace of God. The confirming grace of God, the reassuring grace of God. (coughs) The weakest believer gets the same salvation, provided they are indeed a believer. The weakest believer gets the same salvation. The weakest believer gets the same savior. The weakest of believers ends up in the same heaven. The weakest believer dwells in the same eternity. We're told in, in um, the book of Romans chapter 14, if you want to look at it, turn there. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Before his own master, he stands or falls and it is his master who makes him stand. My friends, this is our God. This is our Lord. This is our King. In our weakness, we have a very strong saviour. In our sinfulness, we have a very faithful shepherd. In our... Oh, I'm trying to think of a word, our, our commonness. Our commonness. In and of ourselves, we're no different to anybody. In and of ourselves, we're nothing special. In and of ourselves, concerning the flesh, We're average people. You know, who who could honestly claim they can trace their lineage back to a royal family or a Nobel Prize winning scientist or some such thing? The answer is none of us. But we are saved by the grace of God. We are made to stand by the grace of God. He upholds us. If you are in Christ you are not reliant upon your own works. Does that mean you don't have to do any works? And the answer is no, that's not what I'm saying. Strive to be obedient. Engage in the war to which you are called. Engage in the battles which are put before you. Strive to put to, put to death the flesh, to mortify the flesh. Strive to not be ruled over by the world, but to be ruled over by the word of God. Strive to give the evil one no place in your lives. Strive to be holy and solely in the kingdom of God. And you've got to strive to do these things. You know, just because you're saved by grace and not by works does not mean that God does not command us to do works. In the book of James, James talks about the one who says he's saved by faith and has no works. And James says that kind of faith saves nobody because it's not faith. It's presumption. Be seeking to obey God in all that God commands. Be seeking to grow in Christ-likeness in all that God commands. I'm not telling you that this will save you, but I'm telling you that God will bless your efforts. I'm telling you that you will be made to stand in the presence of God. Saving faith is not a saving work, but saving faith is always accompanied by the works that are the fruit of salvation. Even so, though your works seem feeble and insufficient, and I'm telling you that our works are feeble and insufficient. Our works are feeble and insufficient. In the last hour, each and every one of us here have sinned in some way that deserves the judgment of God, even if it's only a thought. Even if it's only a thought, in some way, our minds have drifted off into wickedness just in the last hour. But we are being made to stand and we will be made to stand and we will have standing in the presence of God because we who are in Christ are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Isaac, a faithful man, seeming to be concerned more with comfort than anything else in his life, Seeming to be willing to try and go against the commandments of God, especially concerning his children. His favourite is Esau because Esau's a good cook. He's willing to let Esau have any girl Esau so desires. Though his own father had procured for him a wife from a different nation, from a different place. Isaac, in some ways, It appears that he's a lazy man. He's only inclined to do what he has to do and then only just in time. Isaac, who just wants to settle near a stream of water and do no more. Go no further. Isaac, who's not willing to argue about being mistreated. Remember, Abimelech sent him away and the servants of Abimelech were making his life a misery. And he's not even willing to raise the issue. Isaac, who apparently is not willing to go to war. You know, you have to wonder, just, just for example, Lot gets taken captive in the war of the kings. And the moment Abraham hears it, he calls together all his fighting age men and says, Lot's in trouble, we're going to get him back. I wonder what would have happened if that happened in the, age of, in the life and the ages of Isaac. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I honestly get the impression that Isaac probably would have said, well, Lot got himself into a mess and Lot can get himself out of a mess. I'm going that way and headed off in a different direction rather than go to war. That's the impression that I get of Isaac. Yet God set his love upon him. God set his love upon him. God made him stand. God gave him blessing. God directed him back into the promised land. God gave him peace with the world around about him, ultimately. Ultimately. My friends, there's promise there for us. There's there's comfort there for us. We're no better than an Isaac. Even the best person among us, whoever that may be, we're no better than an Isaac. We're no holier than an Isaac. We're no wiser than an Isaac. Yet God has set his love upon us. God has set his salvation upon us. God is faithful even when we are not. And so, my friends, we ought to be the worshippers of living God in spirit and in truth, faithfully obeying in all that we can, doing all that God has given to us to do. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that Our salvation is not reliant upon our works and we freely acknowledge before you, our Father, that if it were, we would not be saved for our works are not good. We have nothing of which we can boast. We boast only in the salvation that we have found in our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would indeed direct our lives so that we would always come back to the promises of God, so that we would always be turned back to the dwelling place that is in Christ our Lord. Help us, Father, to be faithful and obedient. And, Father, we pray that when we are in your presence, we would stand on the basis of the works of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things we pray in his name alone. Amen.